Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. Good day. Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast. I'm Pete Wargent. As always, I'm here with Stephen Moriarty. Hi, Stephen. Mate, I've got to announce, I'm coming to you from the Olympic City. <laughs> 2032. <laughs> Let's hope we're still around by then. And just think how many uh, car parks we're going to have in Brisbane with all the lobbying. Every child shall have a car park, mate. <laughs> Any announcement will be, we're going to build in bridge in Cairns. What for? Because of the Olympics. Yeah. Let's hope the borders are open by 2032 <laughs> and they can roll out the Matilda kangaroo. So yeah. today we're going on to the next episode in our top 10 investment books of all time. Last week, we uh, somewhat self-interestedly referenced our own book, but uh, pleased to say this week, <laughs> we have some different choices. So Steve, let's start with your pick. Tell us what is your pick this week and why did you pick it? Okay, this is the fourth book, which is called Fortune's Formula. Most of the people doing our course will have heard me rabbit on about it a, qu- a fair bit. Basically, Fortune's Formula is a book that tells you about the history and the story behind the Kelly Criteria. It's a really good read. It's a really good non-jargon explanation about the main ideas of the Kelly and basically why it's superior to the efficient market theory. That might throw a few people off. It shouldn't because it's it's um it's actually he explains it really well in the book, the two, the two theories and the differences between them. The thing I found interesting personally was when I started reading it, the first 50 or 100 pages are about the really early days of Claude Shannon and Ed Thorpe. And they're talking about gangsters and the gangsters are trying to take over, um, you know, the gambling houses and all this sort of stuff. And I was a bit like, oh, geez, I hope this warms up. But it did. It, it got a lot better. But even when I read it the second time, it was really, really good because he just writes really well in terms of the whole story. It turns out to be quite an interesting story about this thing called The Wire, you know, and how the Kelly Criterion came about, um, how Claude Shannon, who created information theory, got involved. He talks about Ed Thorpe, um, you know, all those sorts of things that really get to the crux about how how Kelly was developed and and more importantly what it was developed for and it was basically developed for this i this idea about this this thing called the gambler's ruin it it has a lot of parallels with the way people invest in a sort of dollar cost averaging way if i can put it like that basically saying gambler's ruin was if you keep betting the same amount you eventually go broke it's not about the stock markets it's about back then it was about games of chance so it was about cards roulette you know that plays a big a big role in kelly and uh, claude shannon actually getting together 
um, because Ed Thorpe got a got an audience with Claude Shannon to present this thesis, and then Ed Thorpe talked about the roulette wheel, and that really got Shannon interested. As you said, a very interesting book in this regard because it starts out with a lot of um, history and stuff, and you. As somebody who's mainly interested in finance and investing, when you start out reading the book, it's a bit like, oh, what am I reading here? It's just like a history book. But then it, it does kind of tie together nicely. And as you mentioned, a lot of the um, the genesis of these ideas was around gambling and um, how people sought to find an edge. And I can actually remember going through this same sort of thought process as a late teenager, basically when, when I was at university and we started going to casinos and there are different ways to gamble. You could just bet the same amount every time on the roulette wheel. Eventually, some Einstein comes up with the idea of the martingale strategy, i.e. you just keep doubling your stake until you win. Yep. You know, so you're just betting on the, the reds and the blacks. But I guess as you eventually find out to your detriment, that, that works until it doesn't. So that eventually, you're going to bump up against the table maximum or you just run out of money and the, the yeah. whole thing falls over. So what is really good about this book it moves on to talk about applications of financial markets, and there are, for the people who are mathematically minded, formulas in there, but it, it's also explained in layman's terms. But explain to us, Steve, how the Kelly criterion or the Kelly model works on the basis of, firstly, finding an edge, but also, secondly, allocating your bet size depending on the size of your bankroll. Yeah, you've got to remember it was based around card playing and the roulette wheel, so sort of something like that, or horse races. The important point is, which is not exactly relatable to the stock market, you could calculate all the odds and all the payoffs. So in other words, Kelly, to give you the the simplest thing I can think of is it's like rolling a dice and saying, okay, pick a number. Right now, if if it's a true dice, well, you've got about 16% chance of rolling a one, two, three, four, five, or a six, right? So what you can do is you can work out what the odds are and what the expected return is, depending on what odd. I give you five to one, it'll roll a three. I give you 10 to one, it'll roll a four. I give you 100 to one, it'll roll a five. You can go through and calculate all those expected returns. That was generally how things worked. What Kelly came up with was this idea of saying, let's say with my dice example, the dice is loaded, right? And it's always going to end up on a a six. If six is, if the guy says, yeah, well, mate, you know, I'll pay you five to one for a six. Now, if you know for certain it's going to run, it's going to hit a six, well, it's sort of a hundred to one on, but you're getting five to one. So naturally you should bet a lot of money, right? Because you've got a really, really high probability of a really, really good outcome. It's a little bit different at the stock market. And as you know, Pete, we talk about the CAPE ratio. And what we say is, look, all I can tell you is when the CAPE is really low, I can't tell you you're going to get 11.2 or 14.6 or 13.5. But what I can tell you is that you're going to get above average returns according to the history and the vice versa. Whereas at the moment, as you know, we're saying, well, the CAPE's at 38 the return over the next 10 years is going to be really, really awful. Now, it could be different, and I can't tell you what the exact return is like I can calculate it with throwing a dice, right? Because it, and it's, a, it's an, an important point. 
in the dice throwing, what you're talking about is risk. In the stock market, what you're talking about is uncertainty. And I, I won't go into it too much here, but there's a, a subtle difference. What Kelly was saying was if you have inside information, which remember the efficient market theory says no one has any more information than anybody else, what Kelly said was, well, yes, they do. And if you've got that inside information, you can exploit the difference between the public odds and the real odds. And so that's the way you sort of look at it. As I said, you, you can't work it out like a game of cards by saying the calculated payoffs are X. That is really the interesting point and probably the most challenging thing to get your head around. As you said, I mean, it, it, it really just follows, in the simplest terms, the formula 2P minus 1 equals X. If, you, if you're 100% certain of an outcome, well, of course, you bet all of your money on that yes. outcome. When you're dealing with financial markets, obviously, there's a lot more uncertainty. And I suppose that is ultimately the hardest thing uh, for a, a person to decide is what percentage of your bankroll should you bet? Because the uh, measuring the edge for an individual is difficult. And um, as you mentioned before, you don't want to put yourself in a position uh, where you're risking ruin. And that's why some people use a fractional Kelly bet. But the principle is very important. And I think as you've uh, mentioned on several episodes of the podcast, what the, the, the whole point of doing this is to focus on the geometric returns for your investing, not the arithmetical average returns, because those two numbers will not uh, be the same thing. And uh, I guess it's probably one of the hardest concepts for, for, for beginners to wrap their head around is that the geometric return is not the same thing as the actual average return that we often hear about. Yeah, the, the, basically the edge is how much you expect to win on the average, assuming that you could make the same wager over and over again with the same probabilities. So what Kelly was saying was every time you get dealt an ace and the, there's, you know, as I use this example, there's five cards left in the deck, right, and you know there's a, a, a jack, a queen, a king, and a ten, you get dealt an ace. What you're saying is, right, there's four cards that are, are picture cards out of five left. Okay, I've got a huge probability of making money. How much should I bet? What Kelly says is you should bet, you know, whatever the fraction is, which would be very large if you've got an 80% edge, 80% uh, probability. But what Kelly says is you should do that assuming that every time you got that set up, you would bet a big amount, right? And the really important stuff is saying, was Kelly betting can be really volatile. And so they, they toned it down, if I can put it that way, with a, with a um, fractional betting. And that's what Poundstone talks about in what I think is probably the best chapter, which is part four of the book, The St. Petersburg Wager. And he, he gives a really good explanation between capital growth theory or Kelly and the efficient market theory and he shows you and sets it out really well about why you should focus on the geometric average, not the arithmetic average. And that's where it really comes useful in the stock market. 
Yeah, and I think um, when people see mathematical formulas, there's definitely a tendency for some people for their eyes to glaze over. And Poundstone does a really good job of um, using some layman terms equivalents uh, to try and explain what he's talking about. I, I think um, sometimes I've found when you're talking about this stuff, if you actually uh, put it into a different frame and say, well, look, Warren Buffett is a Kelly-style investor, that tends to get people's attention. You know, I guess like he, he's always understood this principle, hence why it was identified at a young age that he would be one of the wealthiest people in the world. And um, I suppose, let, well, let's talk about some examples. So in, um, I've forgotten the year, was it 1963 or whatever with Amex? And, and Buffett was confident enough to see the edge there and he put 40% of his entire portfolio into one investment. Now, uh, I guess that goes against a lot of the... Um, portfolio theory about spreading yep. your bets across loads of different investments to, to manage risk, uh, essentially identifying a big edge and a big opportunity and putting 40% of the portfolio in. It's same again with Coca-Cola. And I haven't looked any time recently, but I would think of the common stock portfolio, Apple must be uh, approaching what half of the, the portfolio, you know, yeah, $100 yeah. billion dollar investment. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really interesting because you know, people have said over the years, well, Buffett's not a, you know, he doesn't understand technology and he's not a tech investor. And yet here we are with, you know, effectively putting half the stock portfolio into one stock. Uh, but that, I guess that's the whole point of the Kelly criterion. When you identify high probability events and you've got a level of confidence, you, you bet big. Uh, I suppose I'd throw in one caveat there, and that is you probably would want to bet small while you're learning your trade. And only once you've built up a level of confidence in your skills, then you have the ability to bet big. Yeah, but the, there's two ways you can sort of use Kelly. One point that they did agree on uh, between Markowitz, who did the efficient market theory, and Kelly, who did capital growth, was about diversification. And what Kelly said, though, was you should only bet when you've got an edge. If you haven't got an edge, i.e. a coin toss, then you shouldn't bet right? Or your maximum bet should be 2%. And that's a, it's a really, really important point because Kelly said Buffett is, a, is in some ways a bit of a special Kelly better by going for the, the home run when you've got the fat pitch, right? Warren Buffett's, a lot of those sayings are just Kelly sayings, right? Wait for the fat pitch. What's that? Betting when you've got an edge, right? What does Buffett say? Don't use leverage. What does Kelly say? Don't overbet. Right, So these things are the same. Buffett has gone the route of saying, I'm going to bet big when, I, when I'm really, really confident. The alternative Kelly suggested was having lots of little bets. And so that's a little bit more like the Ben Graham strategy that is that sort of uh, it's sort of statistical arbitrage, you know, where you bet you buy 50 companies that have got a book value lower than one you know, uh, 10 of them go broke, 20 don't do much, and the other 20 go gangbusters and make up for the whole portfolio. Because in essence, Kelly and uh, Markowitz were talking about how do you construct a really good portfolio to get really wealthy? There's a really, really fundamental difference between it. You get to understand that when you read this book. That's why I sort of picked it, because it's a really good introductory book to the Kelly criteria and I think it's really interesting enough 
for people to go, you know what, I'm going to really follow that up. And it's because it just makes really good sense. Yeah, I think I was just going to say the same thing. One of the things I find with, you know, really great books is that you read them the first time and then the second time you think, gee, that sounds interesting. I'm going to yeah. follow up on some of these ideas. And I, I think what people you know, who read Fortune's formula and related books may well find is it actually leads them on to reading more Buffett. I suppose you might even, if you really wanted to sharpen up your understanding of odds, you'd probably uh, become a card player or play bridge or poker. Um, but yeah, particularly, I think as an ideas generator, you'd you'd probably lean towards reading more about things like Buffett. And I think to be fair, we probably oversimplify uh, the you know, Berkshire Hathaway uh, portfolio. I mean, there, there would be plenty of arbitrage in the portfolio, and we, as you mentioned before, insurance operations. You know, the common stock portfolio isn't the, isn't the whole game. So I think you know sometimes I think people like to oversimplify. You know, Buffett's genius, uh, be, partly because that's what he does himself with his own quotes. But I think you're right as a as a place to start and actually start thinking about Kelly. Um, it's a really good introductory book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think for most people. The benefit would be reading it twice, investigating it, and then coming back and reading it again. Um, and I think we might have mentioned this last week or even the week before that. The, the the first time you read a book, you know, and I think I might have mentioned this with the rational exuberance, you sort of go, wow, yeah, that's interesting. But you don't know why it's interesting. It's only when you get more and more experience and you start learning about the efficient market theory and then you go, well, hang on, that doesn't sound like Kelly. You start comparing and going, actually, this Kelly thing sounds more like um, it's it's better, which we know it's true, than the efficient market hypothesis. But, you know, the industry, and I'm not slagging off at the industry, but they use, a lot of them use the efficient market hypothesis. So it's the leader, and quite frankly, I don't mind if they do. So I think it's just a really, really good read and the reason why I selected it is because it's basically, it's a bit, you know, like a keeper. It's like, right, that's one you're going to read three or four times in your lifetime. Yeah, yeah. That, I, I think, um, yeah, there's there's certain books like that. And I guess all of the ones that we're selecting are the ones that you, you'd have in your, in your bookshelf at all times and you keep coming back to. And uh, they can trigger further reading and further interest. So yeah. uh, I highly recommend getting a copy and uh Thanks for your selection this week, Steve. So, shall we, shall we move on to my uh, my pick, uh, which is um, "Anti Fragile" by Nassim Taleb? I think we've we've talked about the Black Swan by Taleb before, but actually, the the selection for today is "Anti Fragile." Now, interesting thing with um, Taleb's books, he possibly deliberately writes them in such a way that it's quite difficult for journalists uh, just to summarise the ideas and. Um, in this case, there's a couple of dozen chapters and there are so many different analogies and anecdotes that it's actually quite difficult to summarise. I'll have a crack, though. I guess, I guess the, a couple, well, three key themes. I guess one is that if you've got a fragile system, then the fragile system will, will collapse or break when you put it under stress. So that's the first idea. Flowing on from that, for a system to be anti-fragile, uh, i.e. the opposite, uh, then then some of its parts must break and be fragile. And then I guess the conclusion is a system that is anti-fragile actually becomes stronger or builds extra capacity when you put it under stress. So obviously, this is important for finance, 
in financial markets, investing. But actually, when you uh, read the book, and it goes across, as I said, 20 plus chapters, I mean, you, you start to realize that this applies across so many different things. Personally, it applies to your career, your personal finances. It also applies to countries and political systems. So it's one heck of a read. And again, it's one of those where when you go through the book, you, the first time you read it, you kind of you, you're just trying to grasp these key concepts. But then the second time you read it, there's so many analogies in there that it kind of just leads you on into different directions. Steve. Yeah, yeah. I'd, um, again, I read Talum, and it's a it's a tough pick, you know, anti fragile because it's part of the inserto which he starts with with filled by randomness, which is about the normal distribution. Then he talks about black swans, which is about the non-normal distribution and sort of power laws, and then he sort of brings it together with anti-fragile and talks about fragility and anti-fragility, and he talks about evolution a lot because he uses that as the sort of idea of evolution being anti-fragile, whereas the financial system is fragility. The really important part, I think, as you say, Pete, is... It, it, once you start reading it, you start getting the idea that it, it it's it's about the way things work, and that's not just in finance. It's also in sports, or it's in your personal life, or it's in the environment, or it's in how we treat global warming. So it's a really, really fundamental change about how you view the world. And, and I should mention this because it's important. Stephen Jay Gould, who you know is my favourite author, was a mentor. Talib in his first book says Stephen Jay Gould was a mentor. And so his writing style is very a little bit similar to Stephen Jay Gould, which I find really um, appealing. But it's just it's just one of those books that there's there's like a, an idea on every goddamn page. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. every page you go, right, I've got to write that down. Shit, you know, there's another one. I've got to write that down as well. Oh, I've got to write that down as well. And it just, honestly, when I read it, it, my mind just exploded and I had to go back and start reading Fool by Randomness and The Black Swan again because it was just, it's just such a good book. Yeah, well, actually, funny you say that because when I, I made some notes for this podcast, which you may be able to see because we're on a video here, and I've just got pages of notes. And uh, it was actually when I tried to summarize it into just two or three key ideas, you realize how difficult it is. So you mentioned evolution as a as um, an anti fragile uh, system. So, for example, like we've you know we've developed as humans, we've got these incredibly complex uh, hands. Uh, the very uh, we've got great dexterity, but that. That has taken thousands of years for us to evolve in that way. But I guess a key point is that for evolution uh, to be successful, some species and uh, had to die out and some characteristics had to die for us to become more anti-fragile over time. I guess when you start to apply this to your personal life, your career, your personal finances, financial markets, you start to see there's so many different places that this could be applied. Now, I'm just going to put in one example Certainly for a lot of people from uh, like a middle class background such as myself, where my parents, um, despite being uh, raging socialists, actually uh, met at university. Um, and uh, there was definitely um, a, a thinking in uh, sort of middle England that, um, you know, for, for people of my background in averted commas, you should go to university, get a degree, then, you know, maybe get a professional career possibly moving up to becoming a mid-level executive. Then you get a mortgage, 
you get married, you have a few kids, uh, you know, you got a couple of cars. Uh, when you actually look at that as a system, it's not to say it's a bad thing, but you could easily argue that it's a fragile thing because there's so much reliance there being placed on your role as a mid-level executive and there's so many things hanging off it. So, I mean, that's just one example of a potentially fragile situation because a recession comes along, you lose your job, but the mortgage payments continue. Uh, you've still got to pay for your car loans. You've got to keep the kids in school. Um, so, I mean, that's just one example of how you might actually set yourself up to be in a fragile situation. And of course, then when you start thinking through the remedies, multiple income streams, additional flexibility, not loading yourself up with too much mortgage debt. You know, there's lots of things you can do, but you need to be aware of the potential for fragility in the first place uh, rather than just blindly accepting what is deemed to be common advice. The really big points about fragility, you can't predict the future with any great degree of certainty. So if you can't do that, and he talks about using the value-at-risk models that the financiers use, which they, which he says gives them a false confidence about, you know, oh, look, everything will be all right. You know, if the stock market drops 3%, we're fine. And what he says is that the system is fragile. And so, therefore, if you're in a fragile system, you really need to work out that that's what you should stay away from. And the reason why is because he says if over a lifetime, he uses this dem- the idea of a coffee cup, right? Most of the time, it's, it's, it's sort of stable. It likes stability, right? Why? Because it's fragile. Now, all you have to do is bump the coffee cup off the table once, and that's it, right? The coffee cup smashes. You can't use it again. And so he's using that as, a, as an example of fragility. And so what he's saying is if you do that, you know that in 30 years, the coffee cup will be knocked off, therefore it'll blow up. It'll smash and it'll be useless. What you want to do is say, okay, I don't want to play on that field. What I want to do is I want to make sure the coffee cup or, you know, the system I'm dealing with can withstand those one in a hundred year floods. That's what he's sort of saying. We know there's one in a hundred year floods. Well, if that's the case, don't buy in a floodplain, right? Why? Well, I don't know when. It could be tomorrow. It's one in a hundred years you tend to sort of think, oh, well, it won't happen next year. And so what he's saying is that fragility is what brings you undone. And so you need to make yourself anti-fragile to make to benefit from that from other fragility. Yeah, absolutely. I've said on other episodes, I certainly couldn't have predicted 10 or 15 years ago where I'll be today. So you follow that line of thought. Did you think, well, you know, you need to accept that the future is much more unpredictable than you think? Um, I think, um, as it applies to financial markets, I think central bankers and policymakers should probably read anti fragile because I think one of the things you may find is where volatility is suppressed artificially. And we've certainly seen plenty of that with uh, some of the policies since the financial crisis, then that actually can lead to a more fragile system because it's not getting the the stressors that you would normally associate with financial markets. And I guess, you know, you could certainly make the case that the longer the stability period goes on for, the bigger the potential problems you're storing up. So, and I think this is where there is actually a, a tie between Poundstone and Taleb. What this should sort of potentially lead you towards is that if 
uh, financial markets and stock markets uh, potentially fragile and prone to unforeseen events well you don't want to really expose yourself too much to an expensive market what you really want to do is look for those markets that have already experienced great volatility and big drawdowns and just pick off the opportunities as they come along Taleb talked about using a barbell strategy you know where you have basically some very safe investments and then potentially some higher risk ones but with particularly looking for limited downside but unlimited upside he talks about fragility robustness and then anti-fragility and the example he uses for anti-fragile is the hydra which is if you cut off its head two heads grow and so you know the more you cut off for the more heads the more and more grow in its place so that's what he says is anti-fragile and what he says is you know naturally enough well that benefits from disorder that's a fantastic idea fragility is the sword of Damocles, which is hanging over the guy's head by a, a hair. One little movement of that hair and you, you're wiped out. So there's a sort of distinction. The way we use it in the risk hierarchy in our program is like this. Fragile, I think fragile is an individual company, right? Why? Because it can go bankrupt and you do all you do, right? So that to me is a, a certain a, a fragility. Now, There are some companies that won't be fragile or will be, say, more robust, but there's still a fragility there. I think of robust as the individual sector of, you know, energy or materials or consumer discretionary, that sort of thing. There's certainly some volatility, but you can can use that to your advantage. Then I think of anti-fragile as the, the, the country index. And what I mean by that is you and I can actually personally benefit from the volatility, right, or from the chaos. And the reason why is quite simple. We know the market's not going to blow up and go to zero, even though some companies will will fall, which is exactly what you were explaining at the start when you, you know, when you said, well, parts of the system will fall off, but the whole system will, the whole ecosystem will still become back stronger. Well, that's what happens in the in the market index. You know, you got in the ASX, you got three hundred companies. Okay, twenty might go broke in a recession, but the ones that he, that survive will be bigger and stronger. And so that's anti fragile. And we use that in the risk hierarchy by saying that's where you want to be, that's where you want to play. You can pick stocks, and I'm I'm not knocking that. You know, people can do that, but they're fragile. And when the market crashes a lot of the quality stocks still lose so much money that it takes you a long time to get back to where you were. Yes. So, gosh, there's a lot of uh, different themes there. So, yeah, I think on your point about the the Hydra and Hercules cutting off the Hydra's head and it grows back stronger, I think, um, you know, we, we kind of know this stuff from our personal living experience. You go to the gym and lift weights and then you when you're resting the body comes back with more it builds extra capacity they um taleb talked about the idea of hormesis that ancient greek uh, theory you know you poison the king a little bit and then they, they build up some resilience now i guess you, you can apply this right across um, your career in business um I, I think you know an example of a fragile business if you're employing 50 people with very clearly defined roles and then the economy moves in a different direction or goes into a recession you're stuck with that overhead 
And it's very difficult if you're not flexible to avoid being fragile. Now, I guess um, an entrepreneur, on the other hand, that entrepreneurs are known to have very high failure rates in business. Um, Taleb would say, well, look, only a loser would not learn from their mistakes. And I think that's that's an important thing for anyone who's an entrepreneur. I mean, I can think of, gosh, uh, I remember being on, once I was on the project uh, because I, I made a big boo-boo on a, TV, a live television cross to a breakfast breakfast slot. And I was absolutely mortified at the time. But I guess the thing is you learn from your mistakes and you don't do it again. Uh, so it, it applies a lot to your personal life as well. I think Taleb would also say there's certainly a lot of benefit to having what he calls FU money, i.e. enough wealth to have most of the advantages of wealth, but not necessarily the trappings of wealth. And just to come back to your point, Steve, on uh, investing and stock markets and financial markets, uh, Taleb says that um, be wary of charlatans who only ever give positive advice. Um, I think there's plenty of that in the financial services industry people say oh look in the, it should be fine in the long run no, but they're not necessarily highlighting downside risk whereas what Taleb says is if you think about a chess grandmaster well they win by not losing you know they eliminate the downside and then in the long run they become the strongest and most anti-fragile yeah it's it's and, and I've funnily enough I've just written a little Friday tip that we publish on that that defense is the best offense the thing I'm critical of the market sort of pundits and stuff about is this incessant bullishness all the time. And look, you know, I don't like being pessimistic either, but the reality is the economy's been smashed with a somewhat black swan called COVID and therefore you've got to tread carefully. And the idea of, oh, you just keep shoving your money into the market, what that what that relates to is exactly what we were talking about in um Poundstone's book with Kelly because Kelly said, well, if you continue to bet the same amount of money all the time, you're going to blow up. And why? Because we know the market explodes 50 to 60% every 10 or whatever years, like it did in 2000, then it did again in 2007, 1987 when it dropped, you know, 20% in a day. Those sort of things really cruel your portfolio. And that's why Taleb is saying the fragility can in a lot of cases be very personal if you're retiring at the start of 2000 and or at the end of 2008 and you lose 50% of your portfolio. So you've gone from a position of being what you think is anti-fragile or at the minimum robust, you've turned out you've discovered you're really fragile because, again, the industry's just like everything will be fine and just keep putting money in. That's And look, I'm not being rude, but that's a really stupid way to bet. That's like going to the casino, playing cards. Every time you win, you just go, nah, I'm just all in every hand, mate. I win six hands in a row, right, yeah, nah, all in every hand, even though you get dealt crappy cards. So what Taleb is saying is at some point, your luck is going to run out. You're going to suffer a black swan event. Therefore, you need to be anti-fragile to those. And so, i.e., don't shop in the, you know, where the fragility is. Just realise it's fragile and go, right, I need to try and find the places where the anti-fragility, where I can benefit from volatility and chaos. Yes, yeah, I think yeah, you're right. The, the, the perspective on volatility can get quite skewed. And I think, you know, this this applies not just to financial markets, you know, countries, 
politics. You, you have long periods of peace, and then suddenly something goes wrong. Same with financial markets. You know, uh, Taleb talks about the Turkey problem. The Thanksgiving turkey, you know, its life is getting better and better in the lead, lead up to Thanksgiving because it's being fed more and more, but then uh, wakes up on uh, that morning and gets killed. And I guess that's um, an analogy that relates to financial markets and economies. Uh, I think, um, you know, there are certain remedies. And I think, you know, with entrepreneurs, the, the idea is that the ones who fail in the end make the overall system more robust because of what they call creative destruction or or Schumpeter's Gale. But I think uh, the idea here is really to look for for a system, and not just in your investing, but also your personal life and your career or your business, and just the way you live, that is, uh, can benefit from disorder or volatility and not fall in a heap at the first sign of trouble. It's, as I said, it's a very difficult book to summarise, and there's so many other uh, analogies and anecdotes that we haven't even touched on there. But the idea of you know, extra stress building capacity is absolutely key to the book. So I think, um, well, we've uh, we could talk all day about this uh, this particular book and the other ones, Steve. But I think there are some there are some clear uh, parallels between the two, between anti fragile and fortunes formula, and in terms of how you approach your uh, investing and also your life in general. So I think we should probably wrap it up there, Steve, rather than talk all day. And then next week, we've got our final two selections. So thanks for today, Stephen, and look forward to joining you next week. Cheers, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers.